So the other day I was talking to a friend of mine, and he mentioned that in January there is such a day called Divorce Day. And I was like, what? I'm like, that sounds weird. I don't believe that. But I looked it up, and sure enough, there's a whole bunch of stuff about Divorce Day in January. Uh, in fact, I found this one thing on an online article. I found a whole bunch of stuff, but this one article talks about it. and says, the first Monday after January 1st has been dubbed Divorce Day due to the spike in the number of people filing for splits with the stress of Christmas and acrimonious New Year celebrations proving the final nail in the coffin for rocky relationships. There's another quote that I read from a popular blog about why she, uh, she's the blogger, and her husband decided to divorce. She said, people change. And falling out of love and growing apart is reason enough to end your marriage. At least that's my opinion. Who wants to sit next to someone at dinner, pay a mortgage, and sleep under the same sheets with someone who doesn't love them? Finally, one last quote. You never close your eyes anymore when I kiss your lips. And there's no tenderness like before in your fingertips. You're trying hard not to show it, but baby, baby, I know it. You've lost that loving feeling. Whoa, that loving feeling. You've lost that loving feeling, and now it's gone, gone, gone. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Cl close quote. See, you're gonna you're gonna have to you're gonna have to forgive that last little bit. It's kind of gallows humor. I think a little. I don't want to make light of uh, of divorce. It isn't really a laughing matter. And in fact, I disagree with the reason that I read that the that the lady, the blogger, gave. And I, and I believe I can make a pretty good case that Jesus would disagree with that as well. Uh, in fact, Jesus takes marriage so seriously that it is a model for something truly. Amazing. What is that? What is the, the human institution of marriage a symbol for? Yeah, it's, 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 the, it's a symbol of a, Jesus' relationship with his church. That is what that symbolizes. So Jesus is wholly committed to his bride, the church. And he expects the same thing from those who follow him. Wholehearted commitment. We're going to be talking about the concepts of love in the church today. We're not going to be talking about marriage per se, but we're going to be talking about the church and love as we start a new series that's going to take us through the letters to the seven churches of Revelation. No, we're not going to be going through the entire book. We're just going to be going through chapters two and three. And these letters were written to churches by real churches by Jesus himself and allow us to learn from what he saw in them. So I, I want to start us off by giving us a little bit of context. So the, the book of Revelation was written by a guy named John. He addresses himself as John, and, and most people believe that he is John the Apostle, that he wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and I also take that as the way things are. The name Revelation, it comes from the first word in the book. The Greek word is apocopolis, or apocop, oh man, I don't know why I've been stumbling over this word 
all day. Apocalypsis. I keep wanting to add in different syllables into that word, and it's killing me. It's like a tongue twister, but it's not. It's an easy word. And I'm, anyway, apocalypsis, which means unveiling or revealing or revelation. That's where we get the book from. And just like other letters in the Bible, like Daniel or Ezekiel or Zechariah, it falls into a genre known as apocalyptic literature. There's a few things we need to know when we read apocalyptic literature because this genre has been taken advantage of. So first, John uses things like imagery and symbolism and simile and metaphor to reveal things. So occasionally the images that are depicted in this book will be revealed or explained inside the book itself. Today, our passage that we're going to be reading has such imagery in it. In other places, the imagery or symbolism that's used in the book is going to be explained elsewhere, like in the book of Daniel or the book of Zechariah. In fact, there's upwards of 550 Old Testament references in the book of Revelation. So John makes a lot of use of the Old Testament. So he'll use words like, like, something is like something. So I, I heard a voice that sounded like a trumpet. It's not a trumpet, it's a voice, but it sounds like a trumpet. His face was like the sun shining and so on. This letter, it also transcends time to a degree. And what do I mean by that? Well, first and foremost, this was written to real people in a real place in the first century. It had true, real meaning to them. It was, they understood stuff that was going on at that time. It also has application for us now, especially as we read through these churches, there's stuff in there that is very, very applicable to us now. So Jesus will be talking straight to us as well. And finally, there's some prophecy. There's some future telling that is going on here. It addresses things that are yet to come. Therefore, Revelation is as much about yesterday and today as it is about tomorrow. So just to kind of ruin it for for maybe somebody. If someone says that Revelation is all the future, that's that's incorrect. It's it's not just about the future. In fact, most of it is about the, the first century and then how that works out and applies to us. So the original readers of the book were the seven churches. They would have received this. This was what's called a circular letter. John wrote it and then it would have gone to Ephesus and then Smyrna and so on and so forth. And these churches we're all in the region of what they called Asia, which is now part of Turkey. It's still Asia in the continent of Asia, but they, it's in the country of Turkey. 2016, Sarah and I uh, were part of a team out of a church in Abbotsford, Northview, that went uh, to Turkey, and we were helping and serving some Syrian refugees and doing some things while we were there. It was an incredible time. And after the trip was over, the mission trip part, a bunch of people went back. Sarah was pregnant, had to go back to work, so she left. But myself and a few people stayed behind, and we actually went and toured these seven churches and got to see some of the sites that they were at. Some of them are dilapidated, almost nothing left, like a knocked-over pillar. Other places, there's quite a bit. Ephesus is still, um, the later Ephesus is still, there's still lots of stuff there. It was neat to be able to walk in a place that we knew that people like Timothy and Paul and Peter and James and so on and so forth had had lived and ministered and worked. It was really, really cool. But you might ask, weren't there more churches in Asia Minor? Why just seven? And there were more churches in Asia Minor at the time, Colossae being one. And that church is going to come come into play once we get to the last letter in this series for Laodicea. Colossae plays a role in that. So why did Jesus only include seven churches? 
Well, best guess, uh, the reason is, is that numbers also play a huge role, symbolic role in the book of, book of Revelation. There's uh, numbers like 3 and 7 and 10 and 12, or multiples of them play significant roles. They're symbolic for certain things. And so 7 would be symbolic for perfection or completion. Creation. This is a very, very important number in the book of Revelation. And so, therefore, the fact that Jesus addresses seven churches makes us believe that what Jesus is doing is saying this group of seven churches as a whole unit represents the church universal. And so by that, we can glean many things from these churches. So in these churches, we're going to learn the good the bad and the ugly of what it means to be the church. Without question is the fact that Jesus has hope and dream, hopes and dreams for his church and is actively seeking to accomplish these by encouraging church, the church. He's wanting to empower the church and also to discipline the church when they don't fulfill the roles. I keep saying the word church, and by that I'm, I'm not talking about, we need to be clear, not talking about the building, it's the people. It's, it's, if you're a person who claims to follow Jesus, if you believe that you're a Christian, then you are the church. It's also important to note that this whole book was written to, even though it names certain individual churches that they're going to be getting it, like I said, it was a circular letter. So it's going to be hitting all of them. So they all have all 22 chapters of Revelation. So these churches are all going to be reading or all read each other's mail. They're going to know exactly who was doing what, good or bad. And so the promises and the warnings therein are for all of them. So let's get started. We're going to read Revelation 2, verses 1 to 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who hold the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So what can we learn from this letter? Let's walk back through it and see. So right off the bat, we notice in verse 1 that it's addressed to the angel of the church of Ephesus, to the angel. And as we go through each week over the next seven weeks, there's seven churches, it's gonna, we're going to see that it's addressed to the angel, to the angel, to the angel for all of them. Who is this angel? Now, there's a lot of options. I've read at least six, but I'm only going to give you two because I think there's two of them that are primarily used. And that's the angel is either a literal angel or it's a person, like a leader, a pastor, perhaps, an overseer, somebody that's been get charged with receiving this message. Personally, I go with the latter. I, I go with it's a person. 
mostly because it, it, it would be strange for me to, to see God, Jesus, giving a message to a person who then gives it to an angel to give it to people. Every other time in the, in the entire Bible, whenever God uses an angel as a messenger at all, it goes, God, angel, people. So this would be unusual. Can God do it this way? 100%. And so even then, the, the word that's used here, it's, if, if you care, it's, it's angeloi. The word there is translated angel, or it's also translated messenger. Other places in the New Testament, it's translated as messenger. And so this could be the messenger. This, the only thing that would be unusual is this would be the only time it would be messenger in the book of Revelation. So if you have your heart set on this being a literal angel, that's a perfectly good interpretation too. I just stick with the pastor or some sort of a, a human overseer. Whoever it is, the addressee in this case is the one overseeing and responsible for the church in Ephesus. Ephesus was a very large and powerful, beautiful city. It was a port city, had a lot of prestige, and it was very religious. Every city back then was very religious, but this was more so than others. Does, uh, it, it held in it something that was, at that point, known as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Does anyone know what that is? Seven wonders of the ancient world in the city of Ephesus. really, really close, super close. Like there was a statue of their goddess there and it has to do with a goddess. Anyone else want to, want to throw this one out? Are you signing? Just yell it out. No, Pantheon's in Greece. Yeah, that's in Athens. Anybody else? We got a third try. It is the temple, temple of Artemis. Temple of Artemis. So that's the, the Greek name for, for this, this uh, feminine deity is Artemis. If you're Roman, it's Diana. They look at that as the same person. So evidently it was quite something to see. It was pretty spectacular. So the church itself had been active there for some time. It started with Priscilla and Aquila and it went through Timothy. At one point was a pastor there. John himself was working there. Paul was there for like three years. It was really, really uh, important city for the spread of the gospel. The church had been active there for a long time. They saw real success as they sought to work there. So the reason for their success, the reason that they did so well, was that they were faithful and full of love for Jesus. That was the primary reason they were example. And we're going to get back to that in a second. But in this verse, we also see something really, really important that we want to point out. And that's when John writes that these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. And so John here is talking about Jesus. He's talking about Jesus. But what does he mean by seven stars or seven golden lampstands? Well, this is the part where we have an actual explanation inside the book. So if you were to go back into chapter 1, verse 20, John writes, As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So the stars, they're the angels or the pastors or overseers or whatever you want to uh, take that as. And the lampstands are the churches themselves, they're the communities themselves. Where is Jesus holding the stars? In his right hand. This is very, very symbolic. Throughout the entire Bible, the right hand is always 
It has to do with power. It has to do with sovereignty. It has to do with control. So here's the point there. Jesus is in charge of that ministry. Jesus is in charge of this ministry. So everyone here, or everyone in Ephesus, everyone in Central Community Church, everybody in any church that's trying to be faithful to Jesus, from the elders and staff on down, they serve at Jesus's good pleasure and take their marching orders from him. If you read in Philippians 2, it says that all authority on heaven and earth has been granted to him. So any authority that anybody has, has been given to them by Jesus. And just as importantly, is the idea that Jesus walks among the churches. He says he's walking among the lampstands. He is with them. He is among them. Before Jesus left, before he ascended, he told his apostles, he told the people that were there, I will be with you until the end of the age. He told them that he would be with them, and them includes us, includes any person who considers themselves a follower of Jesus. Jesus is here today. Jesus is with us every single day, looking in on us, both as individuals, but as the church, seeing what we're all about. He says this in verse two, he says, I know your works to the Ephesian church. I know what you're doing. And then he he goes on to list a number of really good things that they're doing. So as a a letter that we're expecting some some criticism, it's so far so good. Things are are starting off pretty well. Essentially, the church has faithfully been holding to the truths handed down through Scripture, through the Old Testament at that point. And then Jesus came on the scene and began to teach the new covenant. And then he passed that on to his apostles, who then passed it on to the church. And that has gone on straight to this moment. So the Ephesian church, they've patiently put up with persecution. They've patiently put up with people who pridefully tried to infiltrate and to take over the church. They patiently serve God and one another and the community around them. They've been doing a lot of really good things, but just not all good things. Because verse 4, Jesus says, but I have this against you, that you abandoned the love you had at first. See, as I read this, I, I, get, I get the impression that Jesus isn't, he doesn't come across mad. He just kind of, he comes across as disappointed, which is worse. Did you love that when someone says that to you? I'm not mad, I'm just disappointed. But I, I don't get that, he, that he's, he's raging about this. Like we've seen Jesus really upset in, in some of the gospels and Here, it just seems like he expects more from a group that is claiming to follow him. So the love that he's talking about, the love that they lost, this is, uh, I think it's multidimensional. You can look at it from a couple of different angles. First, they've lost the love for Jesus himself that they had at first. Way back, if you're to read in the Old Testament and and the beginnings of the people of God as he was bringing them along, there was something called the Shema, And this is something that people would say over and over and over again. You can find it in Deuteronomy chapter 6. And it's this really beautiful mantra that they would say. And it has to do with saying that the the Lord your God is one. This was very important for them. The Lord your God is one. And you're supposed to love your God, your Lord your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your strength. That everything that a person does is supposed to be done out of a love 
for God. Jesus later on, if you're to read the, uh, his version of it in, in Mark 12 or Matthew 22, he adds mind to this as well. But it just means that we need to love God with everything and, th- and that this is the wind, supposed to be the wind in our sails. So it means that, a loss of love for Jesus. But it also means that because of the loss of love for Jesus, for their love for God, that their love for others, for people, has diminished. So we're going to see in verse 5 that Jesus calls for them to start doing what they did in the beginning, to go back and to redo what they are doing. And he calls these things that they're supposed to be doing, he calls them works. And the same word that he uses here, or in, or in verse 5, is the same one that he uses in verse 2. So it talks about all of those things. But clearly that wasn't enough. Just having good doctrine and, and defeating the, the false apostles and all that stuff wasn't enough. There needed to be something more. And that's the lack of love as a motivation. One reason this failure on their part, it calls for repentance, is found in John's gospel. Because he writes, by this, everyone will you know that you're my disciples, if you love one another. If you love one another, people will know that you're a follower of Jesus. So their failure at this point means that the gospel as good news for people who are apart from God can no longer be heard for the good news that it is. That their lack of love is destroying their witness. See, that's why Jesus calls for repentance. And friends, the bottom line is this. Christianity ceases to be attractive when things aren't done out of love for God and in love of others. Yes, telling the truth, it totally hurts sometimes. Especially when people don't want to hear it. But sometimes we use the truth like a hammer rather than a life preserver. And we can crush people with it. But it's not over till it's over. He doesn't finish there. He says in verse 5, Remember therefore from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, though, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So there's three components to what Jesus is talking about here. He's saying remember, saying repent, and he's saying redo. Remember, repent, redo. So remember Jesus. Remember the grace and the love that he showed while they were lost. Romans tells us that. Paul writes that in Romans. That while we were still caught in our sin, Jesus died for us. He loves us no matter what. That Jesus came to them and showed them that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And then he says to repent. Repent for falling away. Confess that sin. Confess that wrongdoing and turn from it. See, it's, it's funny. This one, I think, is, is easy to get hung up on because admitting wrong is something that people, uh, like I'll speak for myself, it's, it's difficult to do. Tim Keller writes that if someone is criticizing you and the criticism is mostly mistaken, and that right there, because often when people get criticized, there's typically excuses. There's re- like, we want to deflect. We want to get defensive. No, 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 it's not me. It's because of this. It's because of that. But he says, if someone is criticizing you and the criticism is mostly mistaken, identify the 20% of the indictment that's fair. Because no matter if most of it seems like it's crazy, there's still probably a little something there 
that needs to get looked at. So admit that 20% that is fair. And then without excuse, not trying to explain it away, be willing to take it to heart. Do a heart check. See, the strongest Christians, he says, are the ones most willing to repent. And he says the strongest Christians, because this is where Jesus comes in, and he says that a Christian person who wants to follow me, Jesus, needs to be humble. And so it takes humility to be able to admit one is wrong. And this is sage advice for any situation, but for the church of Ephesus, this was Jesus calling them out. And so he wasn't 80% wrong. He was 100% right. FYI, and this is just interesting, a little factoid for you. The city of Ephesus, after this was written, was actually moved, literally moved three kilometers inland. So their, their lampstand was, was moved, like taken from its place and put somewhere else. So whether that was directly from Lord Jesus or not, who knows, but I found it pretty interesting. So remember, repent, and finally, redo what you were doing when you experienced success. Jesus is saying, hold tightly, hold strong to the faith, cling to it, cling to Jesus, cling to truth, cling to one another, look out for one another, bless the community around you, do these things out of love, not out of a hard sense of duty. Tell people that there's hope in Jesus, hope that whatever or whatever darkness may reign today, there is light. There is light. See, this warning and encouragement towards riding the ship, it, it doesn't come without a warning, though. Right? Jesus will remove the church if necessary. I can remember as a kid, my parents, we went, to, I grew up on the island and we went to a, a smaller island, and for whatever reason, we got slingshots. And I was like seven or six or eight or something like that. And there, it came just with one rule. Don't shoot it at anybody. So we're like, okay. And so we got off the boat and we drove home and we got out of the car. And immediately my brother and I ran off to the park. And there was this log there. And I remember, I can remember this clearly. I was crouching behind this log and there was kids on the teeter-totters. And I opened fire, right? Like it, so I'd had it for like 50 seconds and I was already breaking the rule and, and pelting these people. And also I look over and my brother, he's my younger brother, was gone. And I was like, wonder where he went. So I'm going to go look for him to bring him back so we can continue whatever and get back in my yard. And my dad's standing there and he is livid, right? And I could tell by the look on his face. I was like, oh no, my rat brother went told him, told him, uh, told on me. But anyway, I, so I went to go try to explain myself, but I had not, I was just like, but what, what, you know? What, what do you mean? Like, I've, I, to this day, I've never seen that slingshot again. It's, I, I have no idea they burned it or something like that. My brother still had his, but I wasn't allowed to use it. See, Jesus isn't interested in handing the keys to church that's, that it's not interested in, in doing what he says or in, in being motivated by his goodness and, and his love. One commentator points out that neither history nor appropriate activity is sufficient to demand the continued blessings of God. Rather, the only motivation must be love for Christ. So in other words, Jesus is the Lord of the lampstands. He's the Lord of the churches, and, and he alone decides whether or not a church gets to keep its place. 
We're not guaranteed a church community if we are not loving God through word and deed. When Sarah and I were living in Quebec, I don't know, Julian, maybe you, this might ring true for you, but I noticed, started to notice we'd be walking around downtown and there's churches everywhere, except they're not churches anymore. They're like shops and stuff. And I know it's like that in Britain, but is, that, is it like that in France? Like, yeah, people repurposing buildings and, and stuff. A uh, guy who preached in Chilliwack this past week said, uh, and he pointed out that three or 400 churches per year in Canada closed down. A lot of churches. And so we could say, oh, it's the forces of darkness, right? Like, oh, Satan's at work. But in fact, it's more likely that it's just churches who've lost their first love. See, Ephesus was moving in that direction, yet all wasn't lost. Jesus was still encouraging them. He says in verse 6, yet you, this you have... You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, the problem with this verse is we don't know who the Nicolaitans are. There's a, there's a bunch of different um, theories, so feel free to look them up. Could be talking about the false teachers that we've already talked about uh, or whatever. But what's important to note is that Jesus is a fan of those who love what he loves and hate what he hates. This is a, a good thing to him. And, and so what does he hate here? Well, he hates the work of the, the Nicolaitans. What's that? We don't know. But what we do know is that it's not doing things out of a motivation of love for Jesus, that it's not spreading the, the goodness, truth, and beauty of God, the gospel, that God exists, that there is a rupture, there's a, a chasm between humanity and God, but that Jesus has spanned that chasm through his life, death, and resurrection, and now his Salvation is open to all. The Nicolaitans weren't saying that. And so Jesus hated it. So two things we want to note about this, though. This little verse kind of seems like there's not much there, but we, there's very important lessons for us, two of them, that will help us be the kind of church that Jesus wants us to be. First, Jesus doesn't, and nor should we, hate the people who oppose him. He says, I hate the work of the Nicolaitans. doesn't hate the Nicolaitans. Why? Because they're still made in the image of God. And every person on earth is made in the image of God and is, deserves to be treated with gentleness, respect, dignity. And so that's the kind of church Jesus wants to see. We live in a, in a polarizing society where if people disagree now, what do they do? They don't attack the idea. They attack the person. Anybody who's been on any, seen any sort of Facebook debate or, you know, the comments under a YouTube video know that it's attack the person, not the idea. That's how people fight. And this is unacceptable for someone who claims to love God. I, I think there's a verse about that somewhere about like loving people or whatever, right? Like this is, it's an, very, very important for us to remember. Second, the second thing is it's wholly appropriate though, because Remember, he hates, he, he says you hate what the Nicolaitans teach. It's very, very appropriate to hate what God hates. Also in our society, there's this, we've redefined things like love and tolerance to mean it's just all acceptance. And so to allow things that aren't true or don't jive with what God is trying to teach about ultimate reality in the church, to allow that to run rampant is equally unacceptable. 
And God wants his truth, his goodness, his beauty to be prevalent in his church, not whatever we think. But we, this all needs to be done with humility because, I mean, I know I'm not God. And, and I'm not all-knowing. And this is his church. And he's walking amongst us all. So we all need to keep as close as possible to the good shepherd and keep our, our ears open for his voice to make sure that we're following after his lead. And this is, this is important. So he finishes up the letter to the church in Ephesus with these encouraging words. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. So he's saying, listen up. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. God's paradise, relationship with him, heaven. And he, write, he says that uh, we should not imagine that Christians in Ephesus are only promised the right to eat of the tree of life. All the promises, all the warnings that we're going to see as we read through all of these churches are for all churches in all times. So in other words, each church shares the hope promised to the other churches. So when the churches have heard this through to the end, when they've read through the, all 22 chapters, they're going to see that the things are being promised that will happen in these seven letters. When they get to chapters 21 and 22 of the book of Revelation, they're, they're seeing that these things will come true, that these things will happen. So what is this tree? Sunday school answer? Jesus. Bam! <laughs> Love it. Jesus. So we see the imagery here. Garden of Eden, we have the tree of life. And chapter 22 of the book of Revelation, the last chapter of the Bible, we see the tree of life. And that tree, the life that comes from that is Jesus. There's life in Jesus. He died so we can live. Friends, sometimes we can get into a rhythm, I think, that turns church more into something that we do once a week, if that, rather than into something that we are. I think we can, we can forget or overlook how powerful we actually are as a community. What we're equipped to do, and therefore we can abdicate, abdicate our role in, in culture to be the ones who keep the knowledge of God as a sacred right and intentionally show Him to all so that they may be saved into a life of meaning and purpose. See, the, the power isn't ours though, it's Jesus's. So it's no wonder He wants us to meet regularly to remind ourselves that we are actively participating in the heavenly realm whenever we get together. That we strengthen ourselves for what comes when we seek to show people God. So when we do all these things, we do it out of love for Jesus and therefore show people the love of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this great word to us. Great word to the, the church in Ephesus. And we're thankful for you, for John, to including this as, as a reminder for us that love needs to be at the center of everything that we do. The motivation that we, we, we don't fall out of love with you. We don't walk away. But we lean in. We, we look to you for strength. And then we practice 
loving you through prayer, through service, and through looking out for one another. And so, Father, as we do all of these things and more, we pray that your Spirit, your spirit fill us, empower us to be able to do it so amazingly that people can't help but wonder, what is up with that crazy little church on the side of the Lowheed Highway? Don't always agree with what they say, but man, they sure love one another. They sure love God. And boy, do they sure love us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.